Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm good. Um, So, Ashley, today is uh, Monday, January 30th, and uh, while we are recording some intros for some upcoming episodes today, this episode that people are getting ready to listen to is being released on February the 20th. What's special about February the 20th? On February the 20th, you and I will both be leaving Galilee to go to Jacob's well. We hope. We hope so. Hope anyway. Yeah. Yes. We do. It's one of those sweet places that you and I, on our last trip, we had never been, so we got to see it for the first time together. And it's so meaningful for us because we draw such great inspiration from Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well. And so to be at, at that well and for you to give the most beautiful, heartfelt homily at that well, I will never forget it. So I'm hoping that today, which February 20th, will be just as meaningful as it was three years ago. Yeah. Uh, to me, that story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, it's kind of the sort of the quintessential missions moment for me in the Bible. Um, that interaction between Jesus and that woman um, really exemplifies everything that I think as Christ followers, we are called to be in the world, whether it's the the community where we live or to the ends of the earth. Uh, but to just sit and see and talk and listen Uh, That's what it's all about. And we talk a lot about the banquet and the table and imagine it as this endless table where all of us sit together. I think there's also value in recognizing that sometimes there's just two people at that table. And what a privilege uh, to sometimes be the Jesus at that table for someone else. But then also in those moments when we find out that someone else is being that for us. I love that, that story. I I loved seeing that place. The fact that I think you actually drew water out of that well 4,000 years after Jacob or whoever dug it, there's still water coming out of that hole in the ground. That's amazing. It was a long way down. I can assure you of that. My arm got tired. (laughs) And I... I don't know if you remember this, but when we got back to the bus, there was um, a a little Palestinian woman there selling blocks of soap that were like three inch square blocks of soap. And I bought one of those and I have just finished three years later. I finally finished that block of soap. So I'm hoping she's still there and I can get another one when we go back. (laughs) Is this because you just don't bathe often or is it? No. It's, it was hand soap in our like half bath on the hallway that rarely gets used. Um, oh. But there, I'm, I think I'm not making this up, that they're sort of known for their soap making in that area. Mm. It's like one of the things mm-hmm. that they do. So anyway, 
Um, looking forward to being back at Jacob's Well, fingers crossed, and to buying more soap. Here's hoping, Will. Here's hoping. Yeah. It'll be a joyous day for all of us. So, Ashley, uh, who are we hearing from today on The Broken Banquet? Well, a few years ago at the Louisiana United Methodist Church Annual Conference, I believe here in Shreveport, it wasn't in Baton Rouge, it was here in Shreveport, we as a conference commissioned a family to go serve in Africa. And the missionaries were the McCormick family. Um, and David and his wife and their kids uh, were off to go serve in Mozambique. And it was a very special moment to see our conference uh surround this family with their love, with their support, with their presence, and with their prayer, and, and to send this family off into a calling which they had received from God. Uh, so I'm really excited to have David McCormick on the podcast today. They have since returned here to the United States after working for several years in Mozambique, and we get to hear his story of all the lessons he's learned from the mission field. I'm so thankful that he was able to join us and excited about the work that they did there and excited about the work they're doing now. So I'm sure people are going to enjoy this interview. So without further ado, David McCormick, David McCormick. Hey, Ashley. Well, I'm very excited for today because I'm, I wanted to introduce you to a fella named David McCormick. And I don't really know David McCormick all that well. I've met him in person one time, um, but I feel like I know him better than I should. And the more that I've gotten to know David, the more I thought, oh, Will's really going to like David. You have a little bit of parallel story here and there. So I thought that you two would have a lot to talk about. So David, welcome to the Broken Banquet podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, David, it's nice to meet you and um, looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Ashley and I, over the years of, of working together, have had lots of really fun and challenging conversations, just the two of us, about missions and mission relationships and Kind of her on the sort of the sending end and us on the receiving end and all of that kind of stuff. And eventually we just decided, you know, maybe we could include some other people in these conversations. So uh, that's what we're doing and really trying to focus on looking at healthy mission relationships, ways that maybe churches can reimagine a little bit um, what they think about when they think about what it means to be in mission. Of course, we all know that there are some really unhealthy models for missions out there. And uh, anything we can do to, to help people avoid some of those pitfalls is, is a good thing for us to try and do. Uh, we've been fortunate to talk to people who are currently in the mission field, and they've been able to tell a little bit of their stories about their journey into the mission field and the kinds of work that they were doing in different places. Uh, we've talked to people who are, um, well, that's really who we've talked to is people who are in the mission field in it uh, for the most part. For the most part. Um, but aren't we all in the mission field? Like, isn't that is everything so in the mission true. field? It, that's true. That's true. I should, that's one of the yeah, big things at the end of our presentations to, to everyone in congregations or everything. It says we're all missionaries, right? You don't have to yeah. cross the ocean as long as there's some sort of 
boundary crossing. I think you can right. call yourself a missionary. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the church that I attended most often when I was in college, that was the, the sign over the big double doors as you came out of the sanctuary, you know, when church was over, said, you are now entering the mission field. The mission and that's, that's right on. Yeah. Yeah. So I should, maybe I should specify, most of the people we've talked to so far are serving currently in foreign mission contexts. Um, and But we, we've definitely talked uh, several times already about how important it is for there to be balance between uh, what is normally called local missions and foreign missions and how uh, there's the word or does not occur in Acts 1-8. It's and, 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 Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We don't get to just pick one because it's more fun or more convenient or whatever. There's got to be balance. And so anyway... Um, we are looking forward to, to hearing about who you are and for our listeners to hear about who you are and some of the experience that you've had in the, the foreign mission context, but also what you're doing now. To comment on something, you know, I tell people that missions is, is local, regional, and international, right? So near and far, but near and in between near as well, too, because mm-hmm. cultural contexts are different if you go from the south to the north or east to the west. And there's needs in all those areas for needs for partnership and missions for sure but anyway well i tell you what the first uh the first time i ever heard your name david mm-hmm. was uh so i'm at uh, first united methodist church in shreveport and it was the maybe a month or so before you were commissioned at mm-hmm. annual conference to go to mozambique mozambique see i did have it right i said mm-hmm. madagascar like twice and then i was like no nope nope <laughs> Mozambique. My father-in-law for the first year we were there called it Mogadishu. So I think you're okay. (laughs) Well, there you go. Can you tell us about your call story? Like, how did you get to the point of, of being at that juncture of, of being sent to Mozambique? Like what, what was the story up to that point? Yeah. So, I mean, it started back, I guess, in October of 2013, my wife and I had, we're kind of from the North Louisiana area, Shreveport, Mansfield area, and um, we would have what you would consider a regular job. She worked in a hospital as a pharmacist. I was middle management for an insurance company that was based out of Ohio. We had two daughters, and we um, were just kind of living the normal day-to-day grind life, but we were involved in Grace Community United Methodist out on Ellerby Road, and through them we got connected on two areas. One was with a small group, and I think small groups are probably one of the most important discipleship tools there are out there, but also with an extension ministry called Common Ground Community. And so Elizabeth and I were the ones who were, we were up at church a lot, you know, Monday nights for small group, and then Sunday working into the services, and it uh, progressed that way. And we helped at Common Ground kind of, drawn there or drugged there at first. And then after a while, we kind of had this shift into it. So it, mm-hmm. it started out being something we did in our spare time because that's what everybody else was doing. And then through the relationships that we built there and kind of the, the movement of what the organization was doing, it became something that we scheduled our time to do, mm-hmm. even to the point of moving into the Cedar Grove neighborhood so that we could yeah. really be a part. Cause I think a lot of change is affected from within it's always difficult when you're coming from an outside context to an inside and try to help whatever, mm-hmm. especially with this idea that 
there's no help coming from the other end. But so anyway, we started arranging our schedules and our vacations so we could be part of this. And at the same time, we did two studies in the small group. One of them was like a history of Methodism. My wife, who is not raised Methodist, was beneficial for her to kind of get some of the the theology and the understanding of the graces um, that goes along with that. But also we did Jen Hatmaker's um, Seven Fast yes. book. We did oh, that I as love a, that book. As a small group. It was great. And we only did a week where she did a month for each one of those things. But doing those two studies and at the same time working at Common Ground and seeing the movement of the Holy Spirit on the faces and in the interactions with the people, it just kind of led us to realize that you know, we were being called into full-time mission. We had always had some sort of missional component in our lives, even before we were married. I mean, I think to get to the point where we are now, you have to have some of those disastrous trips behind you so that you can figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, we look at those. And, and I'll say that we're still growing every day in our understanding and knowledge of what mutuality and mission is really about. Mm-hmm. But so about... 2014, I remember where we were. I was sitting on the floor in my little study area in my house and she was sitting in a chair and we were talking it out and the kids were asleep. And I looked at her and I said, does, does this mean what I think it means that, that we're going to do this? And she goes, yep. And so we decided that you know we were being called to be United Methodist Missionaries through Global Ministries. And it took about six months for us to apply the process of applications and health reviews and yada yada so about october 2014 we turned in our application we said all right god signed sealed and delivered take it from there and for a year we didn't hear anything Mm. until it was december of 2015 and i got a three (laughs) a three sentence email that said hey david hope you're still interested in mission work we may have a place for you in mozambique Advent will surely be a season of preparation, signed whoever the recruiter was. And I was like, the first thing I did was, I kid you not, the first thing I did was Google, where is Mozambique? Because I had no idea, right? You know, and then I didn't hear anything again for two months. And then it was like the end of February. And then I get this long email. Go ahead. I I thought you were going to say the first thing you did was went back through all of your emails to see how many previous emails you had missed in the meantime. Like that is just so out of the blue. Right. It was just, yeah, it was. And the funny thing about it is it has been a struggle for my family, my wife and I, because uh, we, you know, when you, when you know that you're called to do something, but yet it's not working out and you're just going. And I kid you not, like they say, God goes before you that morning. I dropped my daughter off at school and she got out and she was happy. I think she was three years old and she's walking to the school and I really liked the school she was at and was happy with the people. And kind of said, all right, God, you know, this is not what I want, but if this is what you want, then that's fine. And I kid you not, not six hours later, I got that email and I was like, okay, (laughs) all right. So perfect. But, but in February, we got another email telling us what we would be doing. If we accepted, I was to be the director of a hospital and my wife who has a pharmacist and by training would be the pharmacist for the hospital. And the first thing we said is, nope, it's too big because the, the hospital was huge. It was 100 and they said it was a 150 bed facility that served a catchment area of over 350,000 people. Right. So I don't have a medical oh. background. Right. I, I have a business background, but I didn't have a medical background. So I was like, no, I can't do this. This is just not going to happen. And then we sat with it for a while. And then we said, all right, let's let's do this. Right. And um, another thing, if, if God puts it out there, it paves the way. So this was into February. By April 1st, we had accepted. 
quit our jobs, sold most of our possessions, sold our house, and we're on our way up to Portland, Oregon for training. And that's kind of how it happened. We spent about five weeks in Portland with 22 other missionaries from all over the world. We were commissioned at General Conference, and then by August, we were in Mozambique. Was this a Methodist hospital that you would be running, or what was that? Yeah, it was Shikuki Rural Hospital. It's a collaborative program between the government and the United Methodist Church of Mozambique. Yeah, it's a pretty cool story. It is a very cool story. It's a little shell-shocking, because I, I think that <laughs> that other... my end. Well, I can only imagine. <laughs> I can only imagine because I, you know, I sat back on the just as an observer looking in, not knowing anything about your story, but just knowing that how excited the Louisiana Annual Conference was to be sending you to Mozambique. And so I was excited for you. So tell us what happened next. Well, that was a really precious moment. I- because there's a, someone took a picture. I don't know who it was, but it's wonderful. It's where we're all standing up there surrounded by our family. And mm-hmm. the Bishop Cynthia Fierro Harvey's up there and she's kind of sending us out. And my youngest daughter, she just has her hand on her head and she, she doesn't know what's going on, but it's just so great. And you look up and everyone has their hands out towards you. Oh, it was such a powerful moment. I actually remember that picture. So yeah. I, I'll, we'll make sure to pull that off and put it on the, the show notes. So thanks. Yeah. Well, and I, I just want to say how. I think it's a lot of times when we talk about these sort of these call stories or people's journeys into feeling called into the, 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 the mission field, the, the focus is on that individual or that couple. And, and I think that image of how the community was involved in the sending is really important. You know, in your case, it's the whole conference, right? Mm-hmm. So there's hundreds of churches and representatives that are all involved in the sending of you. But even on a local church level, I remember being asked one time at a missions conference that I was attending at a church by a, a person in the a young person in the youth group about discerning a call to the mission field. And if I had any advice about that, and the advice that I gave her was listen to the people around you, because mm. it's really easy for you and for me to get excited about what we think God is doing in our lives and to have these images of what we're going to go do and this new culture that we're going to learn about and all that kind of stuff. But if what we're feeling and hearing and, and seeing isn't being affirmed by the community around us, then we really need to give that some serious thought. And so just think that image, I'm glad you're going to find that picture because I think that image of the body affirming and sending is just such an important element. It's important and it's necessary too. I mean, when you are in that context and you've kind of been lost your social network and your safety network, that, that community is your anchor, right? Mm -hmm. So that community is your anchor into what you knew and know, but you are also that representative of the community in the world. And so there's this two-way street of how it is, you know? So, yeah. And it, and I remember our first couple of months there, we had, in Mozambique, it's in the Southern Hemisphere. So Christmas, it's hot. Yeah. It's not hot. It's hot. Hot. <laughs> and there's not a lot of Christmas paraphernalia you know you may see a a really gaudy christmas tree in the bank but a lot of people don't don't have or do anything at least where we were and someone sent us this like really shaky grainy footage of a candlelight service when they were singing silent night 
And it was probably the most precious thing we'd gotten that entire year. It was like 35 seconds long, not much, but it was just someone saying, hey, thinking about you. Because, you know, in, in that time of in that Advent, everything gets really busy. And just to not be forgotten was really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't expecting this, but but that um, that image, I'm still thinking about everything that this podcast is about and how I wonder how often the people that are in that picture and not obviously not that specific picture, but just in general, like that kind of a moment, mm-hmm. how seriously they're taking that moment and, and how much they really realize the commitment that they're making. You know, I remember in seminary, um, Will Williman talking about why we get married in the church in front of this crowd of witnesses. Yeah. And it's because really we're kind of, we want them to be involved, right? Mm-hmm. Not just in that day, but the expectation is you are going to be a part of our lives. And I wonder how often churches, when they're praying for a missionary or missionary family and sending them out, if they really get that, or do they just sort of, you know, okay, we did that part, be well, you'll get your check next quarter. Um, right. And, you know, we'll see you in a year. For an award. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or do they really understand that what they are committing to is companionship and faithful friendship and consistently being a part of your life in ministry, wherever it is that they have sent you to. And, and I'm, I know there are people in churches that, that do get it. Um, but I hope this is sort of challenging for some who maybe haven't thought about it that way. Um, my home church just posted a picture last week. They were praying over the mission team that's coming to Costa Rica shortly. And so the whole congregation was up at the front of the church and they're standing around the team and they're praying for them. And, you know, that's, it's easy to just do that. It's in the order of worship, you know, right after the children's moment, the, the mission team comes up, we pray for them and then we get on with the service. And I hope that the members of my church that participated in that will, will take some time to think about, how important an act that is, you know? And I would say in that context too, the six months after they get back is so vital, right? Especially if this is first time for some of them to be out of the country or to be on a mission experience like that, because that's, you get back and everything is rainbows and unicorns until you have to sit with it. And then you realize the difference, right? And I think where a lot of churches could use improvement is having that gathering time over periods for debriefing mm-hmm. and to kind of really express and understand the transformation that went through. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that also starts with recognizing on the front end that you're, you're being sent, you were going, you're therefore going, but it's also about the change in yourself more, maybe more than what change you're affecting. I don't know. Well, no, I completely agree with you because I, I feel like one of my, not challenges, but one of my biggest jobs is to create community. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's creating community so that the mission partner that we support feels like a member of First United Methodist Church in Shreveport, whether those who are going on a trip to see our family globally uh, 
And when they return from that, creating community because they have had a shared experience that no one else is going to understand, even as hard as they try to, they're not going to understand it. But those people who went together, they're going to be bonded together for life. And so how do I continuously create the community and keep the bond between them? Um, I was looking over Thanksgiving uh, because like one of our teams that went to Ecuador back in 2014 or 15, we still have an active group text message because it it just continuously goes throughout the year. But on Thanksgiving, it's huge because we happen to be there for Thanksgiving that year and we ate guinea pig together. And so we're all remembering our time of eating guinea pig. So that that's one of my biggest callings is to create connection and community. So between the partnership of the local church and the missionary or between those people in the church, whatever the case is. So I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I know. And I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, that's, that's pretty big stuff. I mean, that's, that's really where we see sustained transformation, right? Mm-hmm. As we're making disciples of Jesus Christ, it comes from those, those connections over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So can we get back to Mogadishu? I mean, Mozambique. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> we arrived in August, and I had started learning Portuguese because that's the official business language there through Rosetta Stone. But I didn't know, and I got the Brazilian Portuguese, which is very different. <laughs> and so I I was not able to communicate very well. We were in the capital city for a couple of weeks as they prepared the house for us, and so we were actually in a fishing village about eight hours north, uh, called a town called Mashish. I was taking a missionary's place. He was to move to Zimbabwe to work at a hospital there. He'd been in Shikuki for, I think, a couple of decades. And so in the first part of September, I went to to work to shadow him. And after a month or so, I mean, maybe not even that much, he transitioned the job over to me. And all of a sudden, I'm running this hospital that is a collaboration with the government that has over 300 employees. It'll see... 30,000 clinic visits a year, plus, you know, 1,500 children are being born, all this other stuff in um, a land where I didn't really speak the language, and I'm signing these government documents in a language I didn't understand. It took a while to kind of get used to that and to understand that, and I would work with partners within our global health unit to understand the direction that they wanted. So there was this connection to the larger organization or the larger plan. My, My role was to go there understand what was going on, create an operational plan, which we ended up doing, operational plan, strategic plan, and kind of reset the hospital in the right direction. So we did that. Uh, Elizabeth found out that there already was a pharmacist there. So she ended up working. She found a group of artists and opened up a screen printing business and then did a bunch of water and sanitation uh, stuff through the General Board of Global Ministries as well. So a lot of what mission work is, and, and you guys will know this, is that you think you're being sent to do something, but you actually do something else, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of what we were working on, the hospital was kind of the reason that brought us there. But it was the stuff outside of that that would bring us the most joy and the most life. So we, uh, official business hours were from like 7.30 in the morning to 3.30 in the afternoon. So I would go, I would go to work, I would come back, it's 3.30 in the afternoon. It's not going to get dark for another like six and a half hours. There wasn't a lot to do. And it was, it took a while, but it allowed us and it allowed me 
to kind of shake off that that urgency, my cultural urgency, and always having to do something and fill a schedule. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we do as as Americans is we fill it up from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. Well, when I didn't have that opportunity, there was nothing to do. There was no committee meetings, no SPR meetings, no soccer practices or, you know, yada, yada. So sitting in that was very uncomfortable because you're just in this go, go, go mentality. And once you got past the fact that you come home mentally exhausted because you can't speak the language, but you've been in it all day and physically exhausted because that just takes the toll out of you. And then you have nothing to do and you're just kind of a basket of nerves. But once I was able to shed that, I was like, oh, you know, I can read a book at 3.30 in the afternoon. I can walk on the the dirty beach with my children and and this time. And it really got to be great. And there was a lot of reflection in that, um, knowing that there was nowhere for me to be and there was nothing for me to do. And I've done what I could. And that was one of the greater lessons that we experienced in that. So we've talked about time. On, on other episodes and how what a huge gift it is for missionaries being sent out into the field to not be rushed by the sending churches or sending agencies, you know, to like week two be sending progress reports about how many people have been baptized. In your case, it, it sounds like the struggle was more of a personal cultural time struggle, but were you also facing, I mean, were there people here wanting to know, you know, how many babies have been delivered in your hospital this week? Or were you dealing with the personal cultural pressure and also pressures from outside to be earning your keep in the mission field? I'm going to say yes and no. As a global ministries or United Methodist missionary, we have some really neat things um, in compared to some other of the mission agencies, but we work with depending upon what type of missionary you are, there are um, departments in what we call our home office in Atlanta. And though they would work with me to kind of get those job directives. So it's kind of like you have two jobs. You have what you're sent into mission for and your missionary job, right? And they have different responsibilities. So as a missionary, it's my role to bear witness to what God is doing in the world, right? To be that cultural bridge from where I am to the churches and communities that sent me, right? Because, you know, God is there. God is at work. We become closer. We have a path to connection of the Holy Spirit by bearing witness to what that is. Mm-hmm. So that was my one job. And I, I rarely got pressure on that because that was very self-motivated. You know, it mm-hmm. it is tied to support, but it's tied to more than just financial support. That's part of it. But yeah. it's also like, you know, we're struggling. Who's going to pray for us? And I will say prayer was the biggest thing that we felt more so than the financial portion of it, but prayer and emails and cards and the the United women in faith or what used to be the United Methodist women would send birthday cards. And so you'd check your mail three months after your birthday and you'd have like a huge stack of (laughs) cards. Uh, But as far as like the job that we were spent to do, aside from that, there were, they were understanding. There was like, okay, all right, this is what we want to do. This is the timeline we have for that. And for good reason. I mean, I'm a part of a program that they were working on for many years, right? And so they are very understanding as to getting in and getting accustomed, but also want to see some stuff. Don't get me wrong. Even when we go back into the international mission field, I think I would know and be empowered to say, 
I'm going to take a little extra time because if you want this to be sustainable, if you want this to be uh, a healthy situation, not only for our family, which it, I mean, it should be in the first thing, but I'm going to need this amount of time and I'm going to need some other stuff. And I, a lot of times, and I don't know about international or missionaries from other countries, but what I've seen with U.S.-based missionaries is that we are super excited, right? Like we are called, that, that we are filled with the Spirit. We want to go out and do, because doing and doing now is what we know and is what we expect and is what people expect of us. But when you can't drive and you can't communicate and you can't do, I mean, that, that kind of shatters a lot of what you are, yeah. I'm going to ask the unpopular question. Lay it on me. And maybe we can cut this out if you don't feel comfortable with it. But at any point, did you get there and be like, did what the no hell am one, I doing here? Well, no. <laughs> did no one think to tell me that the, the language that I needed to learn was going to be this? And did no one think to give me any cultural type of training? Like, I don't know what you went through up in Portland um, during that time, but... At any point, did you look back and think, whoa, I'm going to go back and be a mission advocate and we're going to completely change the way we do missionary training before people hit the field? So those are conversations we are having, right? Okay. It is. And so there's this balance of what what should I have done Yeah. on my own, right? So I, I should have done a lot of things. But more importantly, I should have been equipped with a toolbox so that I could do these things, right? Like... We had to read a book when we went there, but it would have been nice. A lot of our training was, you know, this is what, this is what you do. This is our theology of mission, yada, yada. And which was good. I mean, because we built, like you said, building community, we had a cohort of missionaries that we still yeah. talk to today. Right? right. And we're serving all over the globe in some place, some culturally sensitive places where you can't say missionary in their name in the same place. Right. But yet I can still reach out to them and still talk to them. And it's fantastic. And a lot of times, I mean, come on. White people from the United States are a little bit arrogant going out and going to save the world. No. Would I have listened? Would I really have listened had I done that? You know, and there's some things that you got to think about in that too. So as long as we're being true, but I think it's a yes and like, yeah, yes, they could have prepared me better and I could have prepared myself better too. And I think it starts with places like this where you get to talk about those mission is messy type of things and that there, there's a lot of harm that can be done if not approached, but at the same time, are people going to listen to it? You almost have to have them make those mistakes so that mm -hmm. they can go out and do it. You just mm -hmm. have to mitigate the amount of harm that you do to right. communities as you go through. And you know, this, as you receive teams, I'm sure, Will, you get all different types of people coming with all different expectations and preconceived notions and motivations and completely no. our, our teams are all, Perfect. Perfect. And they get it. And I really just sit back and watch. See, and that's why you have a good partnership right there because yeah, you have right. laid the foundation. Well done, sir. Yeah. 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 It's so easy. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I definitely part of, part of my job is to sort of be the buffer between the, the volunteers and the community. Mm -hmm. And, and there's some weeks where I don't really have to do a lot as far as that goes. And then there's other weeks where I have, there's more that I have to do as far as that goes. And so you're right. It's sort of when it's kind of going sideways, it's about 
just sort of controlling how sideways it gets so that we don't just wind up leaving a kind of a trail of wreckage yeah. behind us. And I think we sort of have this system that works. The churches here understand they know what our expectations are of the volunteers that we're bringing into their community. And they also know what our expectations are of the church in the community that we're bringing the volunteers into, which to me has a lot to do with just long-term relationship building, right? Mm -hmm. So there's some churches that are stellar right now that the first couple of years it wasn't, but because they've stuck with us, because they've been patient with us, we've been patient with them. The, the communities in Costa Rica have been patient with all of us. We've gotten to a point where it's good. And that's the hard part that you have is how do you bridge that long-term relationship for your short-term mission experiences? Uh -huh. How do you protect what you've invested in throughout the community, but also spread that and share that with people who need to? You know, what is the, you know, people talk about, it, are international missions worth it? And it's so difficult to talk about that because I don't know of any, I would not be here if it wasn't for a, a short-term international trip. I don't, I, one thing we used to do, people would want to, to load up a container and send it over. And I'm like, wow, I really, really, really enjoy the fact that you want to send me used machinery and stuff. And I think that's great. However, think about all the impacts you could have if you take the money it costs, give me the money where this is where money stays. Like money's not going to international companies. It's staying here. You're not having to pay. Mozambique had a higher import tax because that was part of their uh, country budget. So it's like, look at all the different levels that you can do and help people. But that's a hard thing to put across in a positive way, right? Because you can say, I don't want your stuff. I want your money. But that sounds so impersonal. I mean, if you can connect it with, I really want you to be involved this way. I love the trips that would come and, and they would just want to hang out, right? I just want to see. We kind of committed to you. We, it was Virginia. There was a Virginia annual conference. God, they were the best. They're, they're like, okay, we're going to support you this much. We support the hospital this much every year, and we're going to come out and, and take a look. And they would come, and they'd say, all right, tell us what's going on. And we'd walk them around and show them some things, and they'd say, cool, let's go to dinner. You know, And that was because it was all about that relationship building. So when I came into First United Methodist in Shreveport, that was part of the thing is that we were going to change the mission culture of, of the church. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that came out of that is that no short-term trip will happen outside of a long-term partnership. Uh, all of our short-term trips, I call them family reunion trips, that it's all about the partnership and the relationship. And what I say constantly is, what do you do when you go visit family? You eat together, you play together, you catch up and have conversation, and you simply be together. And that that has completely transformed the way that not only we think about global missions, but now how we also think about local missions and how we also now think about our relationship within the church. I love it. I and, love that family model. That's really neat. And from our perspective, of course, there's tons of advantages of being in a long-term relationship with with someone or with a church. But going back to what you were saying earlier, when, when someone says we want to send you a container <laughs> and you say, mm, we don't really need that. I mean, that's sort of shocking until that person who's hearing that has become a part of a long-term relationship and learns more about you and your ministry and the needs in the community. And then it makes, they won't even have to offer that anymore because they already know that's just, it's square pegs and round holes. So you avoid that discomfort 
through the knowing of one another. Ashley knows because of the number of times she's come down here and been a part of what we're doing, the kinds of things that are helpful and the kinds of things that just aren't. Yeah, relationship is is the cornerstone of it. Right on. Clearly, you are not in Mozambique or Mogadishu right now. No, <laughs> I'm not. No, after so, so Methodist missionaries, at least with the United Methodist Church, run in three year contracts. Right, so you do three years, and then you can re up. You know, continue the contract over. And I'm starting to learn there are two different types of missionaries. Global global missionaries is there's the one that goes in there in a place, I guess, like you will for 25, 30 years, and that is their spot. And then there are others who I would like into more utilitarian utilitary players of the baseball team. They can kind of go where they want. So after we did our three years in Mozambique and we worked with the hospital and a couple of things happened with the government. And I said, okay, I want to keep being a missionary. I think I need a different spot. And so they said, you know what, come back here to the United States, work as a mission advocate and you can do that. So we actually transitioned all of our work over to local Mozambicans. There's not a missionary that took our place. It's fantastic. A, a current mm. pastor who um, now does a little bit of that stuff, which is which is great because we're still in contact with them. And a lot of the same partners that we had or got while we were there are still partners. And I'm still in contact with them in a, in a cursory role. Like, hey, how's it going? You're still, you know, that kind of thing. And that's another different conversation It's what to do when you go from place to place as far as relationships that you have built and mm-hmm. what, what is good and what harms that. But so they brought us back here to work as mission advocates. And so what we do now is we are actually in Arkansas because there's, there's a part of coming back, but not coming back to where you're from, right? You still have mm-hmm. to be sent. You still have to cross these boundaries. And as far as I can get away from Louisiana was Arkansas because we still want to be close to family. So we're in a whole different culture of Arkansas, uh, which we love by the way. And um, <laughs> we work with the 12 conferences in the eight states where we take the information from the conferences and the congregations up through global ministries and global ministry strategic direction initiatives. And we push them down to the churches. And it looks like a lot of, a lot of different things under four missional priorities of sending missionaries, global health, evangelism and church planning, and then humanitarian aid and disaster relief. So it'll have me talking to a church this past weekend i was preaching at a church in northern arkansas and then in two months i'll be at a mission academy in san antonio leading two or three sessions on my wife's leading the one on transformative or transactional to transformative missions and i have the fun one of fundraising so you know it's just kind of all over the board as to what we do my favorite part is having these conversations so we have these institutional knowledges of what mission is or what it was Mm-hmm. And I think as the church shifts and as global ministries really enacts this theology of mission of this missio day, you know, God is at work in the world and we are out to bear witness to that, to show, to come alongside where God is working. I think as we kind of get that theology into the churches, it really, it's like you were saying, Will, once you start bringing people in and they understand that, that they don't want to send the container, but they want to be there just so that they can be part of it. So how, how receptive do you feel like the churches that you're in contact with or the people at these conferences that you're in contact, how receptive do you feel like they are? And I guess the follow-up would be, what do you think are the, what are the hangups? Like what's the hardest thing in order to get people to reimagine their missional relationships what do you think, you know, is it generational? Is it just because it's tradition? Like we've always done it this way. Is it, or is it all of the above? 
that's part of it. Yeah. So I think power and privilege has a lot to do with it. I think that in some places it's going well, people are open to it. In other areas, when you, so Methodist, United Methodist missionaries have in a lot of areas moved away from planning churches and more it's global health partnerships, Christian education. And so that really turns a lot of people off because their idea of what a missionary is, is a Bible, a backpack and an unknown area. So are you, so are you saving souls converting, which there are plenty of organizations out there that do great things that are doing that. And that's great. That's just not what United Methodists are doing. So a lot of the hesitation we get comes from that kind of mentality of what mission work is. And that's why our theology of mission is implementing that. But it's very difficult to go into a church that you don't know anyone, that you just kind of have this this knowledge and say, okay, the way you're doing mission is wrong. Let me tell you how to do it. Because then you become the thing you're trying that's to fix. That's colonialism. Right. That is colonialism. So I think that has, that has us really excited to just say, let's talk about that. Tell me what you think. A lot of our responsibility is knowing missionaries, knowing what they do, knowing how they interact in the kingdom and then sharing that with people so that they can see the broad aspect of what it is. And so we build relationships long-term so that we can kind of work on that theology. Now, maybe power and privilege wasn't the right thing, but unilateral mission work where I'm going to go out and I'm going to help someone because that's what I've been told to do. And I'm going to feel good about doing that. So, I think we re- we live in this, I live in this self-denial of brokenness, in my own brokenness in di- different ways, right? Here in the United States, this isn't, this isn't universal, but what I found in, the, in Mozambique is that here in the United States, and especially in the South, it's easy to be a Christian. There's mm-hmm. an expectation. Mm-hmm. There's a very limited amount of energy you have to put forth with that with a whole lot of reward, yeah. right? Yeah, not much cost. Not much cost at all. In areas like Mozambique, like Southeast Asia, and I don't know much about Latin America, but in those areas, like being a Christian is a journey, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an easy journey. And so if we can kind of open our minds and ideas to that through shared experiences, through building of relationships, then we can understand that, we can understand what this whole thing is and how we all live together and where the mm-hmm. space is carved for the Spirit to come in and make those changes in ourselves. Mm-hmm. So thinking we don't have a problem or a brokenness and we're going out to do something for someone else, I think that that is an obstacle. And I'm not going to use yeah. bad language or wrong language, but that's an obstacle or a challenge yeah. to what making disciples is. Totally. And and thinking about this broken banquet, you know, that's an obstacle to taking your seat at the table. That yeah. it doesn't like that mentality doesn't exclude everyone else from the table, it you wind up excluding yourself from the table. I'm getting lots of uh-hums from Ashley. What you got, Ashley? I'm just, I'm just processing. It's all good. No, it's all all good. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy. And it, no. Know. What do you What do you think? Think about this table imagery and coming to the table. And first of all, I want to say I'm really glad that you are doing what you're doing now, having had the experience that you had. I think that's invaluable. If you, if you close your eyes and imagine the table, right, the heavenly banquet that we've all been invited to, and you see me, I hope, um, sitting next to one of your Mozambican brothers or sisters, 
what what are you going to be the most excited about what I'm going to learn from them at that table? Oh, that's a great question. We had a, uh, like I told you, some of the things that we did outside of what we did was the most meaningful. And on Tuesday nights, when we were in Mozambique, we would host a community meal. We had a small house, but we would open it up to anybody that was there. So we had young adult missionaries. We got a lot of nonprofit expats that would work there too. And I think we sat around the table at one point and there were 11 different countries represented. Nice. Yeah. 11 different countries represented. And I'll sum up a little, I'll tell you two stories about what I hope um, you would learn from the people in Mozambique. So when we were just there, we weren't working. The girls were still trying to figure out the ladies and all of us were trying to figure out what was going on. And our house was separated kind of, I guess, by an alley um, from a house across the way. And it was a, a thoroughfare. People would walk often. And my two girls were two and a half and four years old. And they wanted to walk across the street by themselves. And so I'm like, all right, we're going to build this independence. We're going to do this. But I am definitely going to watch you the entire way. <laughs> and so I'm standing on the porch watching them. And it's not far. I mean, it's maybe 10 yards across the way. It's not far at all. And I see this boy who's about eight years old on his way to school. He's wearing the school uniform and he's just kind of walking and enjoying it. And um, he looks over and he sees my daughters and he, he does one of those classic movie double takes like that. And then diverts his path to go and to walk them across the street and then goes back to his path. Doesn't say anything, doesn't look at me for affirmation, doesn't do anything and just keeps on going. And I was like, okay, so... So I'm in an area where community is valued f for the sake of just being with mm -hmm. each other, right? Not what I can get, which when you are the only Western people in a, in a town, that rears its head too. But you can sure. tell the difference between when someone's genuine and someone's not. So there's a genuineness that, just a genuineness of being side by side that is worth it. I think in the absence of a whole lot of things to do, you really know what joy is because you find joy in the areas where you are. And so the smiles and the joy and the laughter and just the simple act of being together with no ulterior motive is something that I would also hope that you would get at that table. Wow. You know, that story also makes me think about something else we've talked about often is what it means for the missionary to be welcomed or invited into the community. And I think for that kind of an act of kindness where there's nothing to be gained by it. And the fact that it was a child that mm -hmm. did it. I would have looked at that and thought, it's okay for us to be here. Mm -hmm. At least yeah. today, <laughs> it's yeah. okay for us to be here. And I think that matters. And this is the other thing too, is having a missionary put into a position of power in a different context is really difficult. That's a, that's a difficult conversation uh, or a difficult thing um, worth a conversation. But so they, I was known because of that, but also because we, we stuck out at being Westerners in that area. Someone would take our children to the market or out to play, and people we never met would be like, why, why do you have those children? Who are you? Like, what, what is this connection? So we really felt this community that was just, I mean, so fantastic. And we loved, my job was very stressful, but when I wasn't doing my job, it was one of the best places I've ever been. When I was doing my missionary job, I should say. When I wasn't doing my my missionary job was great. <laughs> Got it. 
So there's a pretty, uh, pretty major intersection, uh, a couple of miles from our missions and ministry center, which is where my office is, where I am right now. And so anytime we go into town from here, we go through that intersection and there's a, there's a guy, his name's Michael, and he basically lives at that intersection. He's just, some days he's just sitting on the sidewalk. Some days he's in the middle of the intersection directing traffic. It's just, it's kind of one of those situations. And so I've gotten to be friends with Michael over the years. And not long ago, one of the guys who uh, works on our construction crew was driving one of our pickup trucks uh, to run an errand. And when he stopped at the stoplight, Michael like make a made a beeline to the window, knocked on the window, and asked, "What are you doing in Will's truck?" He was concerned <laughs> that, that Ugito had stolen one of our trucks, and I was I was like, "That's awesome!" Like yeah. he's, you know, here's this guy who ninety percent of the time is just not really all there, but he's trying to take care of us. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, even after being here as long as I've been here, little moments like that just mean so much. My favorite story about Michael is when Isabella was in a car, the car with you and one of her friends, and her friend looked over to her and said, who's that guy? And Isabella responded, that's my dad's friend. Yeah, that was definitely one of my proudest dad moments was the fact that that's that's the only qualifier for him is that he's my friend. That's it. That's all you need to know. I have loved this conversation, David. I've loved getting to chat with you and to hear about your experience and um, to hear what you're doing now. Because I, like Will said, I, I'm so glad that you had the experience that you had and now that you're able to bring that back and to have a different mindset of how you teach and how you train others and how you share your experience so that others can learn from it. So. Thanks. Yeah, and I think there's more we could talk about too. You know, yeah. at some point, if we could have you back on, David, and talk a little bit more, sort of specifically about training and preparation, and and just really the work that you are doing at this point for the conference and with the different churches, I think there's a lot more that we could talk about. Oh yeah, it's been great. It's it's been really good to see what y'all are doing too. I mean, this is. We're we're all in it together to work towards this mm-hmm. this mutuality and benef- this non colonialism, as we said. But like, what good mission expression is, or as my wife puts it, what is the embodiment of Christ in the world? And I think having these conversations is a great way to do that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I have to say, like, I don't have all the answers, but I love to be at the table to have the discussion. Well, hey, David, we've really loved having you on the Broken Banquet mm-hmm. Podcast. Thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us and. Will, great interviewing once again. Winging it. Just (laughs) winging it, Ashley. I appreciate you both very, very much and all you're doing for mission and for God and for the world. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. See you, Ashley. See you, Will. Bye, David. Bye. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.